Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. Well, if you still have a Super Bowl hangover, I've got just the cure and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 20 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome to the first annual Super Bowl recap episode of The Bridge, where we will chat everything Super Bowl 50 and more. It's been cold here, if you can imagine, in northeastern Pennsylvania. Frigid cold on some days. Frigid cold in New York City. But I guess that's just the time and place of where we currently are. For you college basketball fans, Duke just beat North Carolina on their home floor, 74-73. In what you would, I guess, call an upset. Duke being ranked number 20, North Carolina being ranked number 5. One of the, if not the best, rivalry in college basketball and maybe in all sports, dare I say. Because in a game like tonight, you would have expected North Carolina to roll right over Duke with the Blue Devils only having about six players at their disposal, then losing one of them to injury during the game. But no, Duke was able to come through, fight through it, and come up with a huge victory As Chris Mad Dog Russo said to start his program on the radio today, he views this game every year as kind of the starting point for the college basketball season of when you should really start paying attention to things. And I can't necessarily disagree with that. Because there's so many teams on the schedule and so many teams make the NCAA tournament, you really don't have to pay too much attention until March. But this game is a good starting point. Rivalry week is a good starting point to really get into the college basketball mindset where we have this lull when the NFL is over and the NBA is having their all-star break. There's really not a lot going on for the next couple weeks until the NCAA tournament. So this is a good time to kind of shift gears to that. But before we do so, I did want to touch on the Super Bowl since this is, of course, the first annual Super Bowl recap special of The Bridge. I'm not going to bore you too much with the game and the stats and all of that sort of thing because you've been hearing about it now for two weeks. You know that the Denver Broncos beat the Carolina Panthers 24-10. You know that it was their defense that won them the game. You know that Von Miller, who was named the MVP, had two and a half sacks and two forced fumbles and pretty much carried them to the victory. You know Peyton Manning had one of the worst statistical performances from a quarterback to ever win the Super Bowl. You know that the offense was held to 194 yards, which is the first team to win a Super Bowl and be held to fewer than 200 yards. You know that the team also set the record for most failed third down conversions with, I believe, 12. It just was a very ugly game, as people have viewed it a very boring game, which as a Denver Broncos fan is exactly what I wanted to happen. I knew it had to be a defensive battle. I said on the last episode of The Bridge that I thought the Broncos 
or the Panthers would have to get into the head of the opposing quarterback. And that's exactly what Denver was able to do early, really set the tone, take the Panthers out of their game plan and really never let them become comfortable. Cam didn't smile much. There was no dabbing. There was no Superman. His biggest smile might have came when he met with Peyton Manning after the game on the field. The defense took control early. Peyton Manning had his best drive of the game to open things up with the opening drive, which led to a field goal, and we went from there. On top of that, you all know what Cam Newton did after the game during his post-game press conference, where he abruptly left, didn't really answer any questions, didn't really address the media until a couple of days later, and from what he had to say, the media wasn't too happy with that either. He basically said, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. He's a very sore loser, as we know. We just don't necessarily see it a lot because he does a lot of winning. Let's be honest with that. He said he didn't want to jump on that fourth quarter fumble with four minutes left in the game that was forced again by Von Miller because he didn't want to hurt his leg. That ended up leading to Denver's only offensive touchdown. So I don't really know how his teammates are going to feel about hearing that, but we'll see what happens. You know that Peyton Manning gave shout outs to Papa John's and Budweiser after the game. You know, John Elway screamed, this one's for Pat. The Denver owner, of course, Pat Bolin, who couldn't be at the game because of some health issues. And you know that in recent days, Peyton Manning's name has been thrown around with an investigation being done with the University of Tennessee and how some things were handled in their athletic department over the past 20 years. With an incident that occurred with Peyton Manning and the athletic trainer 20 years ago that was settled and then brought back up again and then settled again and has now been brought to the surface once again. Unfortunately, if I did get into that, we would have a two-hour podcast. So to save you from that headache, I'm just going to bring on a guest to talk more about the Super Bowl, more about Peyton Manning, more about Cam Newton, and to wrap this whole thing up for us. I, of course, planned to do a show that would recap the Super Bowl and started thinking about who I would like to bring on to discuss things. And fortunately, it really wasn't a hard choice after reading an article on Bleacher Report to start the month of February entitled Champ or Choker Inside Peyton Manning's Complicated Legacy, written by NFL national columnist Brad Gagneau. It was one of the most thorough, unbiased, informative pieces on Peyton Manning that I think I've ever read, and a couple pieces to follow regarding the Carolina Panthers and Denver Broncos made this an easy choice to discuss everything that's been going on lately as far as the Broncos and Panthers are concerned. He's got a couple interesting things coming up as well, so you can keep an eye out on that. I will attach that piece to my show notes, so please take a read of that. And you could also follow him on Twitter at B-R-A-D underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. He was kind enough to come onto the program all the way from Toronto. So we go all over on the bridge and he spoke a little bit about his piece, the Super Bowl and where we all go from here. So without further ado, let's bring him aboard. All right. So we are here with Brad Gagneau. He is a national NFL columnist for Bleach Report and contributes to an array of websites as well. He's going to talk some football with us, some Super Bowl, some Denver Broncos, and we'll see where we can go from there. How you doing, sir? Thanks for joining the program. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Staying warm. I wanted to start yeah. by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you kind of got started with sports writing, and how you were able to get to where you are today with Bleacher Report. 
Yeah, I just kind of climbed various ladders. I, I was going to school here in Toronto for journalism and media studies. Got my foot in the door with a local TV station at first, actually, and you know did some basically volunteer reporting and media for them, and handed in my uh, resume to do an internship with the Score, which is the Score.com and, and and the Score mobile app, which is pretty popular actually in the United States and across the world as well. And at that point, it was this mainly a television network in Toronto and Canada. Got my foot in the door with them as an intern, moved up, volunteered again to write their NFL blog and started doing that uh, on the side until I got kind of good at it and they started to like me, I guess, and started giving me some money to do it in addition to my regular job and then kind of that became my full-time job and I started writing that blog until all of a sudden Bleach Report found me and, and I jumped from the score and the score.com down to Bleach Report and picked up some freelance on the side and now here I am. So that's about this nine-year climb from being a 20-year-old college student to this. Now, since you cover the NFL full-time, I'm sure leading up to the Super Bowl, you had enough pieces regarding it and were immersed in everything that was going on. What do you think some of the biggest storylines were leading into that game, particular for both the Broncos and the Panthers? Well, I think it was all about the quarterbacks because that's the NFL in 2016, 2015. I think it's always about... Aiden and Cam, and, and, you know, whether that's fair or not, and in hindsight, probably wasn't very fair because, of course, the quarterbacks had very little to do with the outcome. But it was all about Peyton would get a second Super Bowl, and, of course, that puts you in a, a much more unique or much more established category of quarterbacks. Only, obviously, about a dozen guys have ever gotten into that territory. And so I think it was all about kind of going out on top, John Elway style, and if you could ride into the sunset, as the cliche goes. And, and on Cam's side, it was kind of about taking that baton from Peyton Manning and becoming this new age transcendent quarterback who would become the face of the game going forward. And and it's not as though that's not going to be the case for Cam, but I think it would have been solidified a little bit more had he obviously beaten Peyton Manning in what many expected to be Peyton and still expect to be Peyton's final game. So that was the obvious storyline for both teams is how the narrative surrounding their quarterbacks would be framed based on the outcome. And, and so far, it does appear as though that has been the case. Now, we've had a lot of other conclusions from that game, like Von Miller and defense wins championships getting kind of bolstered as well, that whole notion. Right. Due to the fact that the Broncos put on a hell of a performance, but I think really it comes down to you know, we've been talking for two weeks now, almost two weeks, a week and a half, about Cam Newton's reaction to losing the game, Cam Newton's uh, inability to jump on a fumble, Cam Newton's controversial shoes in the pregame warm-ups, and Peyton Manning's victory despite a rather mediocre performance, Peyton Manning's reaction to winning the game, and the rest of the world's reaction by all of a sudden digging up a 20-year controversy surrounding Manning that until now was buried and looked like it was never going to come up again. So it's just funny how the two quarterbacks have continued to be the only real storylines that linger from a game that really didn't have a lot of good quarterbacks left. Right, and no mention of the defenses for either squad. Were you surprised yeah. at all at what Denver was able to do on the defensive end? And did it surprise you at all that Denver was able to win the Super Bowl? Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised by both. I mean, very few of us, I think, expected a Panthers team that led the league in scoring in the regular season, scored 500 points, had the MVP quarterback, to not be able to at some point establish some sort of rhythm against even a great defense like Denver's. And, and that comes down to having two weeks to prepare and, and to look at the tape and look at an entire season of tape for Denver. And a lot of credit goes to Wade Phillips, and they've seen them good, and they obviously got after 
Cam in a great way, but it was kind of shocking to see how much of a deer in headlights Newton and that offense were, considering that they saw what happened in New England. They saw what they did to Marcus Cannon. They saw what they did to Sebastian Ballmer and the rest of that offensive line and Tom Brady and how they flustered Brady all day and how they used three- and four-man rushes all day long in order to somehow create pressure. And they disguised a lot of guys, and they mixed on and man, and they had a very creative attack. And now you have Carolina with 14 days to look at that tape, and it's like they didn't expect it. But it, we all saw it coming. There was nothing unique, and that's the one answer Cam Newton did give in his first game press conference, is there was nothing they did we didn't expect. And paraphrasing something along those lines. Right. And so, you know, there wasn't. And, and yet they still just didn't have it. And if you look at all those, the two strip sacks and the other sacks on Cam, pretty much all the sacks and pretty much any mistake Carolina made, they were generally almost unforced errors. I mean, Von Miller made great plays, but, I mean, Cam was holding on the ball way too long. He wasn't detecting pressure. He wasn't expecting it to come from different points. And, and it just was a strange effort from start to finish for a team that I was shocked was not better prepared for a defense that it knew exactly what should have been coming from. Yeah, I thought one of the more telling things was that many of the defensive players after the game in their post-game interviews said that the Panthers pretty much came out and didn't do anything differently from what they had seen on the tape. They came out and tried to run their same game plan and really didn't stray away from that, and Denver was able to take advantage. They really let him have it after the game after having to listen about him for the two weeks, so I guess yeah. they were they were very excited about that. What do you think the defense was able to do specifically that really was what shut down that great Carolina offense and in turn ended up getting them that Super Bowl win? Well, I think the, the, maybe the one, I mean, obviously the obvious one is the pressure, just simply getting to Cam Newton and flustering him. And, and obviously when you can create a touchdown early in the game like they did by forcing a fumble on a relatively young quarterback in the biggest game of his life, You've done your job, essentially. That's that's the ultimate goal, really, to, to score points on defense and to fluster this quarterback and to get in his head. And, and they did that, and they continued to get pressure throughout the game, generally without a lot of extra guys. And so, as a result, they really did what they needed to do, and, and that was the reason why they won this football game. The underrated factor might be the idea that they stopped Jonathan Stewart from start to finish. Jonathan Stewart's the guy who really has been much more of a key to success for Carolina than a lot of people probably realize. When they broke out late in the 2014 season, they won their final four games of that campaign. And then, of course, they won 15 of 16. So they won 19 out of 20 games between the end of 2014 and the end of 2015. And the key, if you look at what turned this team around as much as anything, is that Jonathan Stewart became that workhorse, that reliable, that and basically that star back at around that exact time. Now, Cam Newton got better as well. He's still the MVP of his team. He's still the best player on the team, period. But if not for Jonathan Stewart, I don't think this Panthers team is anywhere near where it's been the last couple of years and not near the Super Bowl. And so the fact that he was taken away wasn't a factor at all, wasn't able to move the ball on the ground, force them to be one-dimensional, force Cam Newton to hold on a little longer, force him to try to make plays where they might not have existed. I think that's probably an underrated fact that a lot of people aren't talking about. We talked about the pass rush. Malik Jackson is going to be a free agent. They have a great interior line. Wolf is a great player. Trevathan, all those guys stepped up and played a fantastic game at stopping the running game for Carolina, which is a huge factor as well. Cam was also held to, don't know, don't remember the number, but it wasn't a high amount of rushing yards. He right. didn't have a great game on the ground, didn't find a lot of daylight there. So, I mean, they just shut him down in every single respect. It wasn't just the pass rush, which is what everyone's talking about. 
Yeah, I think one of the more important things that they had to do early was kind of take away Cam Newton's head and really force the pressure and maybe just get him out of his comfort zone because when they were doing well all season, you saw the smiles, you saw the dabbing. It seemed like they were untouchable, Mm -hmm. but they got under his skin right away, which in turn led to what everybody was talking about. As you mentioned, his post-game press conference where he was very short with the media and ended up storming off before everyone was satisfied with the questioning. Did you have a problem with how he acted after the game? Are you getting up in arms like a lot of people have been about his post-game antics? I don't have one prevailing opinion on this. A part of me wants to say, when he, when people say, you can't relate, you don't know how it feels to lose the Super Bowl, it's got to be the worst moment of his life and all that. And I, I think, well, we've seen 49 other quarterbacks lose the Super Bowl, and we've never seen any of those 49 act quite the way he did. I understand Peyton Manning didn't shake any hands and came storming off, but I was there when Tom Brady took about 45 minutes to get a hold of himself emotionally before meeting with the media and and really wasn't very engaging after losing the 2011 Super Bowl to the Giants. And we've had some examples of of things in this range, but nothing quite this childish and this unprofessional. And so I hate to be that get-off-my-lawn guy, but at the same time, it's an obligation that has a lot more value than I think a lot of people realize, which is to answer to your fans. And, and whether it's archaic or not, the media is a representation of your fans. They're asking questions on behalf of the fans, their readers, so that they can get answers to what happened. In this particular game, there was a lot of people seeking a very specific answer, which was what happened on that fumble. And we never got that answer until two or three days later when he had a chance to think about it. Right. And so we were sort of robbed as fans, as people who spend money on tickets and merchandise, and as a result, indirectly taking Newton's salary we were robbed of a chance to hear him speak, which is in his contract. It is an obligation of his. We went through this with Marshawn Lynch in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, and it is silly when you think about it on the surface, but when you dig a little deeper, you realize that there is a very special reason for why those obligations are in place and why you're supposed to suck it up and why you're supposed to realize that as part of being a multi-million-dollar athlete in this league and, and, and having the incredible opportunity that you have you're supposed to suck it up and give some time to the media and as a result, the fans. And he didn't do that, and that's a shame. And I, I do think that it's something that I hold against him to a very small degree, but I also think in the grand scheme, it's not the biggest deal in the world. I also found it interesting that when he did take time to answer questions a couple days later, members of the media and fans didn't like his answers because he talked about the fumble and maybe not wanting to jump on it because of his leg, and some of his answers weren't really well accepted. So it was a no-win situation for him in that case, but I do agree with you. I think he should have took some time for that. Do you think that will have any negative effect on next season, especially if the Panthers get off to another hot start and play with that kind of swagger? Do you think maybe he'll calm that down a little bit, or how do you think people will view that when that might start happening if they do play well again? Yeah, I wonder what. I I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if even not, maybe not concerted, like where he goes in with a plan to be more tame, but I can see him calming down a little bit, just kind of subconsciously as a result of the criticism he's taken. And to a degree, that would be a shame. I think it's awesome that he gives the football to kids, and, and I don't really care about the dancing and the celebrating. If you score, then you can do what you want, and if you're scored on, you surely don't have the right to complain. But I do think that kind of when you look at everything he's done, the totality of it, he may be beginning to realize or may eventually realize 
that a lot of people who want to cheer for him don't because of the way that he carries himself. Mm-hmm. And as someone who, before he even entered this league, called himself an entertainer and an icon, well, if you're an entertainer, you want to gain as many fans as you can possibly gain, I would imagine. And so if he's alienating himself, which I think on the field is where he risks alienating himself more than after the whistle is blown. And I think it's to belt that play. I think that the play that's going to carry itself for maybe the rest of his career, if he doesn't have another opportunity, which he should, and so lack of jumping on that fumble, which I, I feel is inexcusable. I feel if there's one thing we can blast this guy for is him admitting that he made a business decision at the biggest moment of his football life. And to do that when there's countless players who would take two torn ACLs and three concussions all at the same time in order to recover that ball and have a chance to win the Super Bowl, and yet he decided not to because he was afraid he would tweak his knee? I mean, that is absolutely unacceptable, and I'm shocked that there hasn't been more of an outrage over it. I know there has to a degree, but I mean, they even talk about the post-game press conference when you have a guy admitting that he deliberately shied away from recovering the football in a one-score game with four minutes left in the Super Bowl, that's just incredible. And so I think over time, that's the thing that'll linger, especially if he doesn't get back for a few years, which is completely possible considering how damn hard it is just to make or win a Super Bowl. I think those answers will definitely be coming up in the following years, depending on how the team does. But that switches gears to the winning quarterback, who, of course, gave shout out to Budweiser, Papa John's, several other organizations after his win. He was very open with the press talking about to Bill Belichick how this might be his last rodeo. And before that, you had written the piece on Bleacher Report entitled Champ or Choker Inside Peyton Manning's Complicated Legacy. And I just wanted to hit on that and ask to start, how much work goes into something as comprehensive as that piece was? A lot. I mean, it was a lot of number crunching. And then the thing about those pieces is sometimes you start out and you don't know where it's going to go exactly. And you don't know if it's going to be more numbers-based and more of kind of a, a study and analysis or if it's going to be more anecdotal. And, and, and I interviewed about 20 players, coaches, and in Bill Polian's case, former GMs and mm-hmm. media people for this story. And, and most of them actually didn't really get in. And, and some of them said some great things, but they were kind of saying the same thing. And, and so I kind of, a lot of the work doesn't really show up, even though it's, I think, 6,000 words. Right. A, a lot of the work doesn't even come across because I, I, I have pages upon pages of transcriptions with former teammates and, and whatnot. And it's stuff that I can use in the future, hopefully, and I, I, I've sort of put it toward another piece I'm working on anyway now. But it's just kind of funny how a lot of the work doesn't really show up, and then all of a sudden you're crunching the numbers, and that becomes sort of the predominant aspect of the piece. So it, it definitely... It took a lot out of me, and then the end result I was, I was quite happy with. I think we did establish sort of from rather balanced angle uh, whether you whether you're someone who values only championships and wins, or whether you're someone who values only statistics, or whether you're someone who only values the mark a guy makes on the game empirically without looking at the numbers of the championships. Whether you're looking at any of those angles, I think we covered all of them in terms of the way we should probably be looking at, at Manning entering what would look to be the final game of his career. And, and so we'll, we'll see how that kind of changes over time if he does come back. But I think that it's probably safe to say that we only have to tweak that by a game now. I thought it was one of the most thorough and down-the-middle pieces I've ever read on the subject just because of all the different things you went over and really spoke to both sides of the argument that people make on Peyton Manning 
as far as the stats were concerned, whether that's the regular season or the postseason, what were some of the things that really stood out to you the most as far as in favor of how Peyton Manning is viewed or maybe against how Peyton Manning is viewed? I think it's probably the parallels between Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. And I think it's the fact that we love to compare our quarterbacks like they're boxers. And it's the tale of the tape. And really, Tom Brady takes a backseat to Peyton Manning every single individual way that you would compare the tale of the tape. I mean, even in playoff statistics, and even in the last 10 or ten or 11 years in terms of their head-to-head matchups, Brady's Patriots got to Manning's Colts in a pretty drastic way early in their respective careers, especially early in Brady's career, and sort of set this negative first impression in terms of, from Manning's perspective, and positive first impression for Brady. And it's like we never got over that, because ever since, Manning's had Brady's number in the regular season, in the playoffs, now even in terms of Super Bowl victories, in terms of Super Bowl appearances, in terms of playoff appearances, in terms of playoff statistics, in terms of head-to-head matchups. Almost in every single respect, Manning has had Brady's number since that early kind of success run from Brady. And really, if you look at their careers as a whole, the only area where Brady has any sort of edge over Peyton Manning is four Super Bowls to two Super Bowls. But that's where it's complicated because it's extremely unfair to subject any individual player in a team sport with 53 guys in a roster, 46 active, 22 starters, to championships. I mean, if that's the measure, then Charles Haley is the greatest player in NFL history, and Dan Marino is tied for last place. So it's ridiculous that we would give Brady some sort of crown over Manning as a result. And I think that in that piece and, and as a result of the work that, the, you know, the things that I was discovering as I was doing the piece, it really occurred to me that it's almost silly to try to make a claim that Tom Brady, especially considering the outside factors, like the way he can Manning control the offense and the way he calls his audibles, the way he's a leader, all the other things to ever consider Brady to be a better quarterback than Peyton Manning. I have a very hard time, making that sort of conclusion. A lot of arguments make it seem like it's night and day, and as you pointed out in this piece, it's really not. And one of the more recent things to go against Tom Brady, if you will, is the 3-1 to one ratio from the AFC championships that Peyton now holds over Brady. But as far as the mm-hmm. Super Bowls are concerned, do you think Peyton winning that second Super Bowl title really helps his legacy, or is it just another thing to kind of add to it? I think it did. I think it did because right now we're looking at it like, okay, he didn't really do much. And realistically, they probably could have won that game. And then even that Super Bowl, they had gotten to that Super Bowl and won the game with Brock Osweiler or you or me at quarterback. And that's not necessarily untrue. But I think over time, we're going to look at it for the, the big picture. We're going to see four Super Bowl appearances, two Super Bowl victories. You mentioned beats Brady and the Patriots in three AFC championship games, wins, I think it was in the end now, 14 playoff games, gets to the playoffs in almost every year of his career, finishes first place in almost every year. So if we want to look at even those team accomplishments, the big picture is going to be extremely promising for Peyton Manning 10, 5, 10, 20 years down the road. So I think right now we kind of hold it against him that he won the Super Bowl despite the third lowest passer rating for a Super Bowl winning quarterback in history. But I think in the future, we're probably going to look at it the way we look at John Elway's final couple Super Bowls, 
where Elway did not do a lot to help the Broncos, right. especially in the last one. And yet we just see him as the guy who finally redeemed himself right. and, and got his two championships. So I would imagine we'll view him in, in a very similar light to that and, and that his legacy will absolutely gain some extra points, so to speak, as a result of this, this championship. So if Peyton does indeed retire and this was his last rodeo, where do you think the Broncos will go from here with Brock Osweiler being a free agent? There were rumors today that they were perhaps thinking about Robert Griffin III as bringing him in as their quarterback. Where do you see the offense going and maybe where some of their holes may be? Well, I hope it's on RG3. I think RG3 and Osweiler are both flawed. I think there's no quarterback available to the Denver Broncos or any team in need of a quarterback right now that isn't flawed. And, and that's just the reality of a league where there are 32 teams and fewer than 32 franchise-caliber quarterbacks, and, right. or at least proven ones. And so I think that anyone you go with, there are clear criticisms you can make, whether it's saying, screw it, let's go to the draft and take golf or someone or any of those guys, or let's go with RG3 because he's got the most natural raw talent amongst the group. Or let's go with Kirk Cousins because he had the best 2015 season if Blake Shane's Cousins became available. Or let's go with Sam Bradford because he was the number one pick. And Or let's go with Brock Osweiler because he had a very decent, I don't want to say solid, close, close to solid 2015 season in relief of Manning. He knows their offense. We're comfortable with him. So any of those options, you can find the negative and you can find the potential upside. I think there are different degrees on that. Osweiler seems to make the most sense to me just because, again, he he did have a decent showing for much of 2015. He has most of the natural skills you want. He does need to learn how to go through his second and third progressions and how to settle down and not take sacks and not make the kinds of mistakes he was making at times that he was bailed out on because he had such a great supporting cast in 2015. But I do think... If I had to pick, if I'm John Hillway, I think there's no doubt in my mind. If I can't somehow get a Kirk Cousins, who I think might be a better overall quarterback right now, he's one of the top five quarterbacks in football during the second half of the season, and he probably won't, then I am definitely bringing back Brock Osweiler and, and rolling the dice on him potentially stepping forward and being that guy in 2016. I, I think anyone else is probably a much bigger gamble right now. Yeah, none of those names as a Broncos fan really get me excited. But as you mentioned, I no. think bringing in Brock, at least you have less unanswered questions because you've seen what he was able to do. What's always worried me about him is there never seemed to be much excitement surrounding him, even though he's been on the team for several years. No one's really seen yeah. anything in practice for them to be like, oh, he's going to be our next guy. It's kind of like, well, if he gets the chance, we'll see what he could do. So I think whatever they do, as long as they can bring back that core defense and ride that out again and ask them to again carry them to the Super Bowl, I guess that's probably their best option. So before I get you out of here, let me just ask, what are a couple things you got coming on the fire for Bleacher Report or some other things you're working on we can keep an eye out for? Well, the Peyton Manning narrative never ends, and then the, the piece <laughs> we're doing now is a piece on kind of the Peyton Manning you might not have, have heard of or not not know. And so we've spoken to a few of his former teammates. We're just kind of getting rolling on this right now, and, and some different guys, and just kind of getting some anecdotes and stories about who Peyton is, was in the locker room, on the practice field, and whatnot. And so we're putting that together now, and it might not run until he does retire if that happens in a couple of weeks. But uh, that's our, our main item. And then the other thing that I, I just got started on, maybe, I don't know, two hours ago, as a piece that we're putting together 
on if more free agents will be attracted to the city of Los Angeles than maybe anywhere else. And if L.A. with the Rams could be a new sort of free agent migration set as a result of the fact that Hollywood, tons of marketing opportunities, it's got great weather and is actually home to probably more current NFL players than anywhere except for South, South Florida. So we're going to take a look at that and what some agents and, and marketing folks have to say on that. Well, never a dull moment in the National Football League, so I think you'll always have something to write about, sir. Indeed. <laughs> well, thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. We'll definitely be keeping an eye out for what else you got coming up on the fire, and I'm sure you'll be as excited as everybody else is to get the draft started and get back into the swing of things. Thanks a lot for having me. No problem. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. You too. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can find this episode and all episodes over at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter at London Bridge. You can subscribe to The Bridge on iTunes for some easy listening during your commutes to work. And again, you can follow Brad on Twitter at B-R-A-D underscore G-A-G-N-O-N and keep an eye out for some of his future works over at Bleacher Report. Next time on The Bridge, we'll catch up with the college basketball season, see where some teams may be ranked, some early looks into the NCAA tournament, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Sports.